Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we heard in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old, and this week Jesus is now about 30 years or so old. Uh, last week we heard that Jesus went with Mary and Joseph to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover feast where Jesus would have seen the many animal sacrifices which were pointing ahead to our Lord's own sacrificial death on the cross. This week, Jesus now begins his public ministry, having been baptized by John the Baptist. And this week, we heard of the first sign, the first miracle of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had turned water into wine at a wedding feast in Galilee. Last week, we heard how parents, grandparents, and godparents are to love their children in Christ by ensuring that they, like Jesus, are about their heavenly Father's things, that is, that they are in the Word of God daily in the home, weekly in the divine service. And this week, because of the event taking place at a wedding, we will also hear God's teaching on loving others in Christ, namely our spouses or maybe someone that we may be courting to become our spouse. In today's gospel, Jesus and Mary are attending a wedding, as St. John, the, the gospel writer, the evangelist and apostle, writes. This might indicate that Joseph has now entered the church triumphant. The last specific reference to anything that Joseph is doing was what we heard last week when Jesus is the age of 12 and goes with Mary and Joseph and Jesus down to Jerusalem for the Passover. Later in the Gospels, we do hear some references to Jesus being the carpenter's son, but they do not indicate on whether or not Joseph is still living during our Lord's public ministry. Anyway, Jesus could have used his divine abilities by keeping Jesus alive, but that, or keeping Joseph alive, but that is not why the Father sent our Lord Jesus Christ. Nor would that have been a good purpose to perform his first miracle. Instead of extending the earthly life of his adopted father, Jesus performs his first miracle by extending the festivities that are taking place at a wedding feast. The significance can hardly be overstated that his first miracle takes place at a wedding or that he turns water into wine of all things. For by it taking place at a wedding, this harkens back to the creation account. God, over the course of the six days, had created everything, including Adam, but then he realizes that one thing is not good, and that is Adam is alone. And so he creates Eve as his helpmeet, and so the first recorded event after this creation is the creation of marriage, and now our Lord's first recorded miracle takes place at a marriage in Cana. 
St. John reports this is the first of his signs in which Jesus manifests his glory. So he's revealing that he is God in the flesh. And the Greek word there for first can be understood as something that could occur either first chronologically or first in terms of importance. And I think it could very well mean both in this, in this context. You see, all marriages between a man and a, woman, and, a, and a woman picture some important realities, and the greatest is the picture reflected in Christ, who, as the scriptures describe, is wed to his bride, and that is the church. By Jesus joining himself to her, the church, Jesus takes full responsibility for his bride. He atones for her. He covers up every spot and wrinkle and presents her to his father as an unblemished, holy, and glorious church. That Christ has wed himself to the church reveals his total fidelity toward the church. How Christ will never leave her or abandon her, that he is completely committed to her. And what this means for you as a member of the church, as part of this body, is that Jesus will not abandon you despite your many sins. For Jesus has already covered for you. He has already atoned for your sins on the cross. He presents you to your Father in heaven as holy and blameless, pure for you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. He has committed, he is completely committed to you as your own baptism proves. For you, through your baptism, have been joined to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been adopted through your baptism into God's family. You are counted as one of his own. And also, the Lord's Supper demonstrates the reality that Christ continues to commit himself to you by covering for you and forgiving you and loving you unconditionally. In Isaiah, God asked the people of Israel, despite their rebellion and sin, show me your certificate of divorce. And the people of Israel say, we do not have a certificate of divorce. And, that's, and then God says, well, of course you don't, because I'm not going to let you go that easy. For God is not interested in divorcing you. He has come in this world, in the flesh, to be your help, to be your defender, to be your savior, to be your advocate, totally committing himself to you. Now, of course, sinful man does not have these perfect attributes of Jesus, although he does credit us with having them when we live in faith. For Jesus has fulfilled the law, and the Father sees you as having kept the entire law because of what Jesus does entirely for you. So on our own, we do not love unconditionally as Christ loves his bride, the church. And so marriages in this life suffer from many troubles. And these troubles are further multiplied when people 
do not want to hear or heed God's will when it comes to marriage. God certainly created a strong sexual desire in both men and women so that they will seek marriage and that they will have children. In our day, however, marriage is avoided and so are children. Some imagine the planet has a population problem that must be controlled, yet by God's divine plan and by his own providence, by him providing, the earth keeps on producing enough food to support the rising population. In many countries, they are now starting to face the problem of not enough younger people to sustain the older generations. What the church must do and Christian parents must do uh, for their children is to extol the good things of God. We want our children to love the things that we love, and so we talk about things that we love to our children. We do it frequently, and so we, in doing so, are training our children. If we love sports, we'll speak about sports, and they'll probably love sports too. If we served in the military and we want our children to do so, we'll talk about it, and they'll probably end up doing it. If we want them to go to college, we'll speak about the values of getting a good education and they likely will grow up and upon graduation attend college as we have trained them. How much more should we be training them when it comes to extolling this gift of marriage and having children? If we talk regularly to our children about growing up, finding a Christian spouse, getting married, and then moving in together they will then know the Christian way. They won't be surprised when they discover through the church that the order that they have chosen is contrary to God's will. If we ignore the subject, they will think that what society is doing must be the right way. You see, it's not only temptation that causes our youth to transgress the laws of God on these matters, but I would submit that it's also a lack of instruction in God's word at the home, that many become misdirected and misguided. I recently saw a clip from some discussion between a few women who were in some sort of talk show in media. I'm not really even sure what it, what it was or who they are. But one said that she didn't live with her boyfriend before marriage, and the other two were absolutely shocked, for they just expected that everybody cohabits before getting marriage. They said, well, if you don't do that, then how will you know how, how you two do the dishes together and, and other things? She admitted that she is ashamed to admit to people, to tell people that she did not cohabit because the route that she took was so unpopular. And that's the world that we live in. The one who did what is right is vilified, and the one who teaches what is right becomes vilified, and the ones who do what is right in their own eyes, which is wicked in God's eyes, are seen then as the wise ones. Let this not even be so among you. Instead, listen to what God teaches in his life-giving and life-saving word. Reject, even condemn the wise ways of the world and instead, as a Christian, redeemed by the blood of Christ, fight for what is right and do and extol that which is good, meet, and salutary. Do not give in to the popular trends of the day. 
What Satan wants you to do is to begin to blame yourself or figure that there must be something wrong with you when you are not going with the flow of society. He wants you to cast the blame on yourself. By doing this, he is manipulating you and he is trying to lie to you. He is trying to hurt you and deceive you and make you feel bad for following God's word. Do not give in to those lies of the devil. Jesus attended a wedding because he extols marriage. He approves of the marriage between one man and one woman. After all, he instituted marriage where? In the Garden of Eden, back when there was paradise on earth, back before sin had entered into the world. And so we too, following our Lord's teaching, love and extol the gift of holy matrimony. We are to love that God has given us in the same unconditional love by which God himself loves each and every one of us. In our day, we have idolized the notion of love. This kind of love is merely an empty or, or an, an emotion. It sometimes is an infatu infatuation with something. Uh, what people often express as love in our day is not biblical love, but it is often rooted in the love of the self. When people are saying love is love, they're doing so because they're trying to redefine marriage. It is a phrase dismissive of what the world has known about marriage since God established it. A better way, though, to consider love is not from what the world says, but what God teaches and exemplifies. As a result, we are to love others in Christ. That is something important. Just as we talked last week about loving our children in Christ, that they are in the word. We are to love others in Christ. So if you are married, love your spouse in Christ. To do so would be to fulfill the place that God has given you. As a husband, you love your wife in Christ by providing for her, by protecting her, by covering for her faults. As a, as a wife, you love your husband in Christ by submitting to him and by serving him despite his own faults. Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness so that his first miracle would be turning stones into bread. Feeding himself may seem like a good thing. After all, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness but had he done that first, he would have done a self-serving act with himself only in mind. And that is not the nature of God. Instead, Jesus turned water into wine to serve others. And in the same way, marriage is not about meeting my needs and my, all about my life and my wishes, my, my, my as the world would have you believe it's all about. But instead, we live for our spouses and we work to fulfill their needs. For those who have not yet entered into marriage, it is important for them to also remember to love in Christ. This means guys must not be seeking to get their girlfriends in bed with them because that is usually selfish behavior that results in many hurts and scars. Instead, when a guy loves a girl in Christ, he will seek to fulfill, he will not seek to fulfill his own passions, 
but instead he will seek to fulfill God's will. And that is to use that relationship to enter into holy matrimony. And that way, she is safe. And, she is, and, and he is completely committed to her. And they have received God's blessing. It is not loving one another in Christ when the bed comes before marriage. It is self-love and a fulfilling of passion. Yes, children are often made through these illegitimate unions. These children are created by God and even a blessing of God. And God sends a message through them saying, okay, you two claim to love each other. Now commit to one another in the bonds of holy matrimony. Do what is right for each other and do what is best for this child whom you have now received as a gift. Too many children grow up watching their parents deal with custody rights, even hatred of their own parents against each other, when they should be growing up with a mom and a dad who are together and who have committed to one another. That's why it is so important for us to love our spouse in Christ, and when seeking love, to do so in Christ. Some do not think that they should enter marriage because they haven't succeeded enough in life. They think that marriage is for those who have become financially stable. We wrongly teach our children to go through two decades of schooling before they should even consider any type of marriage, which places undue temptation on them. The Bible does not demand a college education or buying homes or traveling the world before couples consider marriage. When Jesus entered, or when Jesus turned water into wine, he demonstrated that he will take care of the countless souls who enter into holy matrimony with little or nothing. Jesus turned little, that is water, into a lot, that is wine. Jesus, of course, did not even need to do this miracle. It wasn't a requirement that they extend their festivities. It's okay. I suppose it would have been okay for this couple to have become embarrassed because they did not have enough to supply for this week-long celebration in which they were engaged in. But what Jesus sought to do by this miracle is to prevent the couple from embarrassment for having run out of the requisite refreshments and amusements and if he does this, which is an optional thing, but of course it's involved in much symbolism and imagery, as we've talked about, how much more, though, will Jesus provide for those who enter into holy matrimony? How much more will he work to sustain their bodies and lives and bless those who enter marriage? Now, in preparing for this sermon, I had... Tons of thoughts concerning marriage. There's a lot more that one could speak about. Of course, we have to remember the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers for those who have failed to do God's will in this matter. The church does not keep on remembering those things that have happened in the past and since have been corrected and repented of. And neither should we, that we keep on beating ourselves up for the times in which we have broken this teaching concerning God's will on the sixth commandment. 
There's one thing, though, to also bring up with marriage. We remain sinners after getting married, right? We are married also to sinners, as experience certainly proves. Nobody is perfect. Many of the flaws that we may see in our spouses cannot be fixed. Therefore, what must prevail in marriage is the heart that Jesus has for us, and that is a forgiving heart. With the forgiveness Jesus earned for us on the cross, we readily forgive those whom God has placed in our lives to love. After all, it is written, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We rejoice that this is the loving heart that Christ has had for us, that he loves you, that he freely forgives you. He cancels out every last sin because he has redeemed you on the cross. Even the sins that you have suffered on behalf of others who have violated this commandment in some way against you, Christ forgives you and cleanses you of that pollution and filth. He forgives you of any failings you've had in marriage or counsel that you may have given in marriage or your own transgressions with respect to the sixth commandment. The fine wine at Cana pictures, of course, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sin. And therefore, Christ keeps on offering you the sacrament, his body and his blood, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to purify you, to unite you to himself and to the saints who have gone before you in faith. And so receive our Lord Jesus Christ with joy and thanksgiving. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.